This is Guns and Butter. Right, neo-Nazi elements, they are a threat to the whole social economic fabric of the country because they are operating in tandem with the neoliberals, okay? Neoliberalism and neo-fascism join hands, so to speak, uh, because in as much as they establish a neo-fascist government in, in Ukraine, that neo-fascist government is going to take its orders from Washington and Brussels, uh, from the International Monetary Fund, which acts on behalf of Wall Street. Strong economic medicine will be implemented. The standard of living will collapse. And these neo-Nazi collaborators of the European Union and, and the United States will be there essentially as a mechanism of social control. And that can only lead to disaster uh, for the entire uh, Ukrainian population. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, Ukraine's democratic coup d'etat. Washington supports a neo-Nazi coalition government. Michelle Chosodovsky is an economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism. He is the author of many recent articles on the crisis in the Ukraine, including The U.S. Has Installed a Neo-Nazi Government in Ukraine. Today we discuss the political and economic crisis in the Ukraine, the involvement of the United States and the European Union in the violent overthrow of the democratically elected Ukraine president, the 2004 Orange Revolution in that country, its geography, and the involvement of the International Monetary Fund and NATO in Ukraine's history. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. Delighted to be on, on Guns and Butter. With regard to the current upheaval in the Ukraine, what was the substance of an agreement to bring Ukraine closer to the European Union instead of Russia that President Yanukovych refused to sign? Because democratically elected President Yanukovych took refuge in Russia and still says he's president. Well, absolutely. Well, that agreement would have been absolutely devastating for the Ukraine, because it, it would put Ukraine in the hands of Western creditors. It would lead to a subsequent process of impoverishment. And it would also lead to the demise of bilateral relations with Russia, which, from an economic standpoint, were quite uh, beneficial to Ukraine. It was uh, a deal with regard to the pipelines and, and gas using Ukraine as a transit, as well as bilateral relations uh, between the two governments. The, the issue is that upon Yanukovych's refusal to sign that agreement, or at least to put the agreement on hold, then we saw the emergence of protest movements, and those protest movements were triggered by the European Union and the United States. Uh, uh, one suspects that there was an intelligence operation, a very careful timeline of, 
uh, of events leading up to uh, what one might describe, but it's a contradictory term, a democratic coup d'etat in, in the sense that the parliament actually passed the vote uh, while the protests were ongoing, uh, leading to the demise of the president. But that decision of the parliament was totally illegal because you cannot fire a president under the Ukrainian constitution. It, it's a long, drawn-out process. In the United States of America, you cannot simply, you know, fire President Obama by a vote of, of the U.S. Congress. And this, this was a vote which was taken uh, at a period when, when most of the members of parliament weren't even there. And then subsequently, what happened is that they issued an arrest warrant accusing President Yanukovych of having committed mass murder um, by ordering the police to kill civilians um, in Maidan Square. Um, in fact, if we look more carefully, uh, those killings were conducted by neo-Nazi gunmen, uh, which uh, actually were part, were part of the political landscape since one of the most important parties there is Svoboda, uh, which is a neo-Nazi political party and which is part of that coalition. So that is, uh, in a sense, is the background. The question is, was it a legal coup d'etat to fire the president? The parliament can't fire a president. He's an elected head of state. They cannot simply fire him. Now, the, the logic and history of these protest movements is very important because the head of state is accused of, quote, mass murder of civilians during the bloody riots and clashes uh, with police forces on Maidan Independence Square. But when you look at it more carefully, you realize that this mass murder for which he is accused bears the fingerprints of the right sector and the neo-Nazi party's Svoboda. Uh, which incidentally is supported and financed through various channels by the United States and the European Union. You have the National Endowment for Democracy. You have the CIA uh, operating in the background. You have uh, various uh, so-called um, entities, uh, NGOs, which are funded by the West. And you have also paid gunmen, uh, death squads, which um, played a very key role in the last few days of the riots before the decision of the parliament to, to fire the president. And I'm referring to the escalation of violence on the 18th of February after the, the right sector neo-Nazi rioters and thugs. Um, first, they attempted to take over the Ukrainian parliament, and they were repelled by anti-riot police. And then on the following days, the following two days, um, we had incidents of sniper killings. That was on the 20th of February, two days later. And on the 20th of February, according to reports, more than 20 people were killed by professional snipers in the matter of a couple of hours. Okay? Now, the, the media didn't really report on that, or they... They mentioned it, but it was assumed that these snipers were government. Okay? Now, one might ask oneself, why would the government 
you know, start shooting on, on civilians. Uh, there was exchange of gunfire because many of those neo-Nazi militia, they were wearing firearms. They had weapons. And, and there there was an exchange of gunfire. But uh, as far as shooting on innocent people from the rooftops, uh, this has all the hallmarks of a carefully planned intelligence operation. It happened within a few hours. It was at random on, on innocent people. Uh, and then what happened is that these killings uh, were used to accuse President Viktor Yanukovych of having ordered mass murder. And I should mention, and that's very important, that while these snipers were killing civilians, um, and that was acknowledged by the, by the mainstream media, the police, the riot police, had entered into the square with a view to dismantling the barricades, and they were, they were using rubber bullets and uh, conventional anti-riot equipment. They were not using uh, live ammunition against the protesters in the square. Uh, where the live ammunition came from was was from the rooftops. And then there was also an exchange of gunfire between police and these uh, neo-Nazi militia who were armed to the teeth with automatic uh, weapons and so on. Now, the, the issue there is one of, of extreme forms of media disinformation. Uh, I've been listening to the reports on CBC, Canadian uh, Radio and Television, Al Jazeera, uh, U.S. Uh, Network Television, and so on, and there is never any word to the effect that they are neo-Nazi gunmen, not only that they integrate these, these protest movements, but they actually lead the protest movements. They will talk about fundamentalists or extremists or radicals, but they will never say that these people are neo-Nazis with a whole history behind them and with a history of atrocities and so on. So that the right sector are the militia and the Svoboda is the sort of civilian arm of that militia. They operate in tandem and they glorify a major figure of, of World War II, uh, Bandera. It's the hero uh, but Bandera happened to be a Nazi collaborator uh, during World War II. Uh, he, he was, in fact, uh, very much instrumental in, in sending something like 900,000 Jews um, to, to the death camps, uh, according to data on mortality, so that there was a certain section of these neo-Nazi groups who were, in fact, collaborators of, uh, of the Nazis during World War II, and uh, essentially what is now ongoing is that that particular formation of neo-Nazis, which pledge uh, their support uh, to the Nazis of, the, of, the, of World War II, they are uh, involved in atrocities and they are also leading the, the protest movement. Now, why is this important? Because the neo-Nazis supporters of Stepan Bandera, the, the hero of, of World War II, was a collaborator with the, with the Third Reich. These people are now mingling with representatives from the European Union and from 
the United States. So that you have uh, uh, neo-Nazi Svoboda Party leader Oleg Chanbok, who meets up with U.S. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland. Okay, now we know we we know about Victoria Nuland, who said who said some bad things against the European Union, uh, F.K. the the EU, and uh, we we also know that the issue of regime change was uh, contemplated at the policy level and in the State Department with the intelligence community and so on. But what is never mentioned is that Victoria Nuland uh, is buddy-buddy with, uh, with the head of a neo-Nazi party uh, and, and a neo-Nazi party which is not uh, committed to any kind of, of democracy that we might accept within, within Western society. And then you have another, you have a whole bunch of these, these representatives from, uh, uh, you know, from Western countries uh, who mingle with neo-Nazis. Uh, John McCain is, of course, notorious. He goes to the Ukraine, and again, uh, he meets up with, uh, with the Svoboda party leader, uh, Victoria Nuland. And then you have Catherine Ashton, who is the, the foreign policy chief of, of the European Union, um, other leaders uh, don't necessarily mingle, but uh, John Kerry, François Hollande, Angela Merkel, among others, openly pay lip service to neo-Nazism in, in the Ukraine. And that is something which the mainstream media simply does not mention. They will say they're extremists within the protest movement. Uh, they will acknowledge that, but they will never say, A, that they are leading the, the protest movement because they are armed gunmen. Uh, secondly, uh, they will not acknowledge the fact that they have neo-Nazi roots. And thirdly, they will not acknowledge the fact that they are part of this bogus coalition government, which was uh, put together through a vote in a parliament at the height of the protest movement when most of the members of parliament were not even there. And then what you get is some kind of, of government which then proclaims its authority and issues an arrest warrant directed against the former head of state. And what is fundamental there is that Viktor Yanukovych was uh, removed from power uh, not by an act of parliament, but by a threat to his life. He was uh, threatened, uh, and he left the country in haste. He did not give up his position as, as head of state. And uh, I think what, what is striking here is that those killings for which Yanukovych was accused of were perpetrated by these neo-Nazi elements in cahoots, in coordination with the Western military alliance, uh, the United States, and no doubt uh, U.S. intelligence was involved throughout. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Ukraine's democratic coup d'etat, Washington supports a neo-Nazi coalition government. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The right sector has enough public support to destroy the national monument to the Red Army soldiers 
who died liberating Ukraine from Nazi Germany. You write that the riots in Maiden Independence Square and other places were staged and carefully orchestrated. What is the evidence for this? And what was the timeline and specific political objectives of these riots? Well, there's evidence that that these riots were staged because right from the beginning, you had the deployment of militia. These people are not civilian protesters. They were, there was a, a large number of people, and there was a very careful timeline of, of activities. The protest movement and the, the decision in the parliament, then an arrest warrant against the president, and so on and so forth. But I think we have to uh, go back in history to the 2004 so-called Orange Revolution, it spearheaded into power uh, a Western proxy government of uh, President Viktor Yuchenko and, and uh, the controversial Prime Minister Yulia Timoshenko. That happened in 2004. And that protest movement was, in effect, very much rigged by uh, organizations which were supported by the West. And uh, they were very similar to other colored revolutions which took place in different countries. But what was distinct in that period is that you didn't have the neo-fascist militia involved. Now, the 2004 Orange Revolution in the Ukraine was also directed at the same uh, Viktor Yanukovych, wasn't it? In uh, 2004, Yanukovych was uh, prime minister and Viktor Yuchenko uh, became president. So what happened is that um, Yanukovych at the time was the target of a very carefully staged pro-EU EU protest movement. And this was launched by an organization which was called PORA. And PORA was very similar to the to the Serbian Otpor organization. It was an it was a NGO which was supported by the National Endowment for Democracy and so on. It typically had had the fingerprints of, of these colored revolutions. It was not an armed insurrection if we compare it to the present protest movement. And it did not involve in a significant way uh, the actions of neo Nazi uh, militia. But nonetheless, the geopolitics behind it, many regards is similar to what we have today, it was uh, essentially geared towards imposing the neoliberal agenda. Uh, President Viktor Yuchenko was really an IMF appointee. He was the architect of the devastating uh, macroeconomic reforms which were imposed on the Ukraine in, in the early to mid-90s. And uh, he was the preferred candidate, and they spearheaded him into, into the seat of power. And he was acting on behalf of the West, on behalf of the European Union and the United States. And at the time, what was also very important, and it is today as well, is the relationship of the Ukraine uh, to the Western military alliance, namely to NATO. Uh, So that essentially what was at stake was really a conflict between 
a pro-NATO, pro-European, pro-IMF uh, president on the one hand, and uh, a more nationalist uh, Ukrainian um, option, which would also be allied with Moscow. And uh, the 2004 movement was also a pro-EU NATO you know, agenda. Now, what distinguishes the present protest movement is that it is no longer a protest movement per se. It is an armed insurrection uh, because elements within this protest movement are involved in acts of terrorism and arson. The right sector neo-Nazi militia are there killing civilians. They are shooting at the police. The civilian deaths are then blamed on the government, and that is precisely the content of this so-called arrest warrant against Yanukovych, accusing him of killing civilians when those civilians were killed by neo-Nazi snipers from the rooftops and coordinated, most probably, by Western Special Forces and intelligence. This is not something which is uh, uh, unique to the Ukraine. We had sniper firing in, in the protest movement uh, during the election campaign in Venezuela. Uh, we had sniper firing at the very outset of the um, insurrection in Syria. And invariably, when those sniper fires take place, what happens is that civilians are killed, and then the government is blamed for the deaths of civilians when, in fact, those sniper firings were part of an intelligence operation to uh, create conditions of uh, conflict and uh, instability. The country is almost broke and seeking emergency credit from the International Monetary Fund. The IMF is currently considering an emergency loan program to the Ukraine. Didn't the IMF intervene in Ukraine in 1994 with devastating consequences? Absolutely. In fact, um, in 1993, Viktor Yuchenko who subsequently became president in the 2004 elections, uh, was appointed head of the newly formed National Bank of Ukraine. Uh, and he was hailed as a daring reformer. But in fact, he was among the main architects of the IMF's deadly economic medicine. In fact, the IMF were the architects. He was their man in, in Kiev, and he worked hand in glove uh, to implement this historic agreement, which was actually signed in Madrid in 1994. Uh, now, that 1994 agreement was absolutely devastating because it, it led to a dramatic plunge in real wages. The price of bread increased overnight by 300%. Electricity prices went up by 600%. And public transportation, in, in namely fuel prices, essentially uh, went up by 900%. And there you had a tumbling of the standard of living. Now, another uh, important occurrence was the fate of the breadbasket. 
we we know that the Ukraine was a very uh, important producer of wheat. And what happened is that World Bank negotiators uh, actually imposed a regime of trade liberalization whereby U.S. grain surpluses and food aid would be dumped on the domestic market, contributing to destabilizing the breadbasket. Why did it destabilize the breadbasket? Because simultaneously the price of transportation and energy went up by 900%, so that essentially farmers were pushed into bankruptcy and uh, their domestic market was taken over by the import of these highly subsidized grain surpluses, which came from the United States. It's, it's something which has happened in many countries, but essentially we, we say it's like bringing coal to Newcastle, and Newcastle was, the, was the, historically the center of producing coal in the United Kingdom. So you're bringing wheat to, to the breadbasket with the purpose of destroying the breadbasket so that Ukraine's agriculture was destabilized, its industrial base was also affected by the trade package as well as the, the collapse in wages. And uh, essentially, these earlier reforms set the stage for the demise of the Ukrainian economy. Now, I should mention that what is contemplated by the IMF today is a continuation of IMF administrations in the course of the last 20 years, and they will lead to a further process of impoverishment beyond what has been achieved in these past um, adjustment programs, to use the World Bank and the IMF terminology. It's called the Structural Adjustment Program. Let's talk about the geography of the region. Isn't the Crimea in the south and the eastern part of Ukraine historically part of Russia, or uh, more specifically the Soviet Union? Crimea only became part of Ukraine in 1954, uh, I've read, when Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev transferred jurisdiction from Russia, a move that was more of a formality when both Ukraine and Russia were part of the Soviet Union. So the Soviet breakup in 1991 meant that uh, Crimea landed in an independent Ukraine. Isn't this also true for parts of eastern Ukraine? Well, the borders of Ukraine have been changing in the course of the last few hundred years. I mean, clearly... In the 1950s and 60s and 70s, during the Soviet period, those borders didn't really have much meaning. There were Russian communities in the Ukraine uh, overlapping, uh, you know, with Ukrainians in the Russian Federation. Uh, one should understand that the history of Russia and the Ukraine uh, have been integrated for the last uh, several I would say that for more than a thousand years, uh, the language is almost identical, and uh, it's very difficult to dissociate the Ukraine, uh, Belarusia, and Russia. They're part of the same Slavic uh, history, and uh, 
the Ukraine has been caught in, in geopolitics. After the Cold War, the Ukraine declared its independence. That was in 1991. And that independence project was, uh, in effect, supported by the United States. And it was also supported, ultimately, by um, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, to the extent that in, in December 1991, the Ukraine parliament um, endorsed uh, the decision to recognize Ukraine as an independent state. But uh, at the same time, it's very difficult to dissociate, you know, the Ukraine from Russia. It's it's a little bit like Texas wishing to separate from from the United States of America. It's part of Russian history for over a thousand years. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show: Ukraine's democratic coup d'état. Washington supports a neo-Nazi coalition government. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Hasn't NATO been trying to suck in Ukraine for years? For instance, how was Ukraine affected by a 1999 NATO agreement? Well, in fact, in 1999, at the height of the war on Yugoslavia, in other words, that was NATO... uh, forces sent into Yugoslavia, uh, an agreement was signed between a number of uh, former Soviet republics and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and this was held in Washington, and it was also, uh, it also coincided with the 50th uh, anniversary of the founding of, of NATO. Uh, this uh, agreement was with uh, the following countries, Georgia, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, and Moldova. Now, if we look at, at these countries, we'll see that they're located at very strategic points of the former Soviet Union. Uh, Georgia and the Ukraine and Moldova, it's the Black Sea. Uh, Azerbaijan is the Caspian Sea Basin, that the crossroads of strategic pipelines, and essentially the objective of NATO at the time was to uh, integrate these countries into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization with a view to confronting Russia uh, in the Black Sea and in the Caspian Sea Basin. And that area, of course, is strategic because it's at the crossroads of major pipeline routes. It's an area of tremendous uh, wealth in oil and natural gas. Uh, It is important with regard to to maritime routes. Uh, We also had simultaneously in the 90s, slightly before the signing of this agreement, we had the wars in Chechnya, and we know that those wars in Chechnya and Dagestan were, in fact, supported by the CIA. In other words, the insurgent uh, Chechen rebels uh, were affiliated to al-Qaeda. These rebel leaders had been trained in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So that essentially 
there was an objective to destabilize these former Soviet republics, to impoverish them. I should mention that the two countries which were impoverished in the wake of the Cold War and the demise of, of the Soviet Union were the Ukraine and Georgia. According to IMF statistics, the wages in Ukraine collapsed by 75% uh, in relation to the Soviet era. In other words, in a matter of a few years, in 1994, those wages had collapsed by 75%, so that there was a mass impoverishment. And the situation in Georgia was uh, similarly, there was a massive collapse in the standard of living. Now, when we, we look at the, the geopolitics of that region, uh, we must understand that uh, the Russians are still dominant in the Black Sea, they have their naval facilities based in Sebastopol in the Crimea. Uh, they have signed an agreement with the Ukrainian government, which allows them to stay there for the next 25 years beyond 2017. So it's essentially it's, it's a bilateral agreement which was signed with, with the outgoing president, uh, Yanukovych, uh, and is, of course, of crucial significance, so that we can see also there that since this agreement was signed with Yanukovych, the fate of President Yanukovych has a bearing on, on this relationship. But, but I should mention that that agreement, uh, which allows uh, Russia to deploy its naval facilities uh, in the Black Sea out of its port in the Crimea, uh, is a binding agreement between the two governments, irrespective of who actually is in power. And it, it is also related to an agreement between the Ukraine and Russia with regard to the contract on, on natural gas, uh, selling natural gas to the, to the Ukraine, as well as the transshipment of natural gas through uh, Ukrainian territory. Well, yes. Uh, the Russian state gas company Gazprom said that Ukraine owed $1.59 billion in overdue bills for imported gas. Russia is also talking about eliminating its discounted gas price for Ukraine since this whole um, upheaval has taken place. You were discussing the uh, 1999 NATO agreement. Yeah, let me give you details on that NATO agreement. But it just wasn't clear to me exactly what the agreement was. Yeah, well, the agreement, the Guam, Guam is is entitled Organization for Democracy and Economic Development, and it was signed in in 1999. Uh, its charter was uh, then adopted in Yalta in the Crimea in uh, June of 2001. Uh, subsequently, Uzbekistan withdrew and um, essentially sided much more with, with Moscow. Uh, initially, this agreement was intended to enable the extension of NATO into the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea Basin. 
and we can see from the map of that region, first of all, you, you have uh, the Ukraine and Moldova, including, of course, Crimea, which, which legally is part of the Ukraine, uh, constituting a large portion of the northern Black Sea coastline, including the Sea of Azov. And then you have Turkey to the south, and then you have Georgia and Azerbaijan, which respectively have borders on, on the eastern part of the Black Sea and on the western part, as far as Azerbaijan is concerned, of the Caspian Sea Basin. And so that this uh, agreement was very crucial from a geopolitical standpoint. And eventually what NATO had in mind was the militarization of the Black Sea and of the Caspian Sea Basin. That objective is still on the books. And uh, current events point to a confrontation between uh, Moscow on the one hand and, and NATO on the other in the Black Sea. NATO is telling the Russians that they have no right to be in Sebastopol because Sebastopol is Ukrainian territory. Sebastopol is where they have their naval base. Uh, so that we're in a situation where, in effect, Russia and the North Atlantic Military Alliance, NATO, are in a state of potential confrontation, given the fact that NATO, NATO's objective is to militarize the entire uh, Black Sea, Caspian Sea Basin. We can see that to the south of the Black Sea, you have Turkey. And of course, Turkey is a, is a very important member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And, and that's where a lot of, of uh, NATO bases are, are, are located. So this is a very crucial um, geopolitical issue, the control of the Black Sea. And it very much depends on uh, relations between the Ukraine on the one hand and Russia. Uh, and under the previous government, the Russians had an agreement, a lease agreement, whereby their naval forces uh, would be based in Sebastopol and that they would be able to deploy those naval forces throughout the Black Sea Basin. It, it looks like Putin has gotten permission from the Russian parliament to move troops into Ukraine and especially into the Crimea. I think it's uh, significant that uh, the upper house of the Russian parliament on March 1st approved the deployment of Russian troops inside Ukrainian territory. And this was decided in view of the fact that Moscow does not recognize the coalition government which has been illegally installed by the West in defiance of the authority of the outgoing president. So the, the issue really depends very much on the legitimacy of the outgoing president Yanukovych and his relationship to Moscow. Even if he's in exile, he's still the president of the country. And uh, it's important, both Russia and many other countries, including China, do not recognize this new coalition government. So if you don't recognize a new coalition government, 
the former head of state has the authority to enter into bilateral relations with Russia, which may involve the deployment of troops in the Crimea and in southern Russia. We, we have to understand that while the United States, the European Union, the self-proclaimed international community are always uh, talking about anti-Semitism and uh, ironically, prominent scholars and writers are, are accused of being anti-Semitic when they criticize the state of Israel. But here we have an international community which is supporting a neo-Nazi party, which in turn constitutes the core of the proposed coalition. We must understand that there is a sizable Jewish community in the Ukraine, mostly concentrated in the capital city, Kiev. It's about 200,000 people. Uh, this community is described as one of the most vibrant Jewish communities in the world, uh, with uh, many active Jewish organizations and institutions. Uh, the Ukrainian rabbi in Kiev, and I quote, asked Kiev Jews to leave the city and, if possible, the country, due to fears that Jews might be targeted by Svoboda and the brown shirts of the, of the right sector. Okay? And when you look at the Western media, I hardly found anything in, in any of the mainstream media discussing this issue, whether it's the Washington Post, the New York Times, etc. There, there was an article in the New York Review of Books, and what they say is a total fabrication they portray the Jewish community as an unbending supporter of the Maidan protest movement led by the right sector neo-Nazis, and they even say that the Jewish leaders have made a point of supporting the movement. Okay? So they, they dispel the notion that this Jewish community is threatened despite the fact that the, the main rabbi in, 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 uh, in Kiev has said, no, the lives of Jews are threatened. But as far as the West is concerned, this is a non-issue, and they don't even discuss it. Now, the Israeli media inevitably have raised the issue, but they have also um, avoided and distorted the underlying realities, because they say, yes, there's a Jewish community in, in Kiev, but they say, and I'm quoting the Jerusalem Post, they say no information of Jews being targeted as of yet. They then say, based on expert opinion, that in fact the two incidents of anti-Semitic violence, which they acknowledge, was really due to government provocation. Okay, so that they, they lay the blame on, on the outgoing government of, of President Yanukovych. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Ukraine's democratic coup d'etat. Washington supports a neo-Nazi coalition government. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. 
Now, these uh, neo-Nazi uh, parties uh, could also be a threat to other groups, right? Other political groups, communists, etc., don't you think? Well, they will be, they are a threat to, to everybody. They're a threat to the entire country. But uh, I think they are also a threat to the whole social economic fabric of the country because they are operating in tandem with the neoliberals, okay? Neoliberalism and neofascism join hands, so to speak, uh, because in as much as they establish uh, a neofascist government in, in Ukraine, that neofascist government is going to take its orders uh, from Washington and Brussels, uh, from the International Monetary Fund, which acts on behalf of Wall Street. Uh, strong economic medicine will be implemented. The standard of living will collapse. And these neo-Nazi collaborators of the European Union and, and the United States will be there essentially as a mechanism of social control. So we, we, we must understand we're, we're moving towards an authoritarian form of government integrated by the extreme right, by neo-Nazi elements, uh, which already have a track record, and that can only lead to disaster uh, for the entire uh, Ukrainian population. Since democratically elected president of Ukraine, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, has been run out of Kiev and has taken refuge in Russia, a so-called coalition government has been installed. What do we know about this new coalition government, and who comprises it? Well, the coalition government is under the helm of the Fatherland Party, and the Fatherland Party controls the majority of the portfolios. But if we look carefully, uh, this transitional government has granted key positions to the two um, neo-Nazi uh, political entities, namely Svoboda and the right sector. In other words, we're not dealing with a transitional government in which neo-Nazi elements integrate the fringe of the coalition, okay? Um, and in particular, these two main Nazi, neo-Nazi entities have been entrusted with key positions which grants them de facto control over the armed forces, police, and national security. And that, of course, is crucial at this particular crossroads. One individual, Andrei Parubi, uh, who uh, was co-founder of the neo-Nazi Social National Party of Ukraine, which was subsequently renamed Svoboda, was appointed secretary of the National Security and National Defense Committee. Now, this committee is central to the formulation of foreign policy, national security, military deployments, and so on. It's a key position which oversees the Ministry of Defense, the Armed Forces, law enforcement, national security, and, and intelligence. And uh, this individual, Andrei Parubi, was one of the main leaders of the Orange Revolution in 2004, and he uh, is also referred by the Western media as the commandant of the Euromaidan movement, uh, which means that he was uh, in charge 
of the armed insurgency uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, another individual who um, belongs to the right sector and who leads the so-called right sector delegation in the parliament is Dimitri Yarosh. Now, Dimitro Yarosh is actually the leader of the brown shirt neo-Nazi paramilitary during the Euromaidan protest movement. And um, he's a racist, he's a neo-Nazi, uh, he's called for the disbanding of the party of, of the regions of the Communist Party, and uh, he uh, directly led uh, the armed insurrection. Uh, so that we're dealing with two individuals who are, in fact, uh, neo-Nazis, uh, and these two individuals have been appointed to key positions, which enables them to decide on the deployment of, of law enforcement as well as armed forces uh, through uh, their role in the National Security and National Defense Committee. These are not portfolio assignments. They're not ministries. But in some regards, this National Security and National Defense Committee overrides individual ministries. Now, you have, if you look at other, uh, you have other positions, which is absolutely crucial. The neo-Nazi party, Svoboda, also controls the judicial process through the appointment of Oleg Makninsky, who, uh, who uh, he's a Svoboda party member, he's a member of parliament, and he has been appointed to the position of prosecutor general of Ukraine. And, and then we can ask ourselves, what kind of justice will prevail with, with a renowned neo-Nazi in charge of the prosecutor's office of Ukraine? In other words, it would correspond to the office of the attorney general of the United States. And then you have other cabinet positions allocated to a former to former members of the neo-Nazi fringe organization, which is called Ukrainian National Assembly, Ukrainian National Self-Defense. That formation is no longer in parliament, but um, several of its former members who have integrated other parties in the parliament uh, have been allocated, um, uh, you know, they've been allocated key positions. One is Tatyana Chernovel, and um, she, um, she is known for, for her role in, in, um, in the Yuna Yunso, and she's been named chair of the government's anti-corruption committee. So that enables her to wage some kind of internal witch, witch hunt against senior officials in the, in, the, you know, in, the, in the government, municipalities, and so on. And then there's another interesting appointment. It's, it, um, it's Yegor Sobolev. Um, he is also linked up to, to neo-Nazi groups, but not in a, in a less formal fashion. But he was, appointed, um, uh, he was appointed to chair what is called the Lustration Committee. And the Lustration Committee essentially has the mandate to purge the followers of President Yanukovych uh, from government and public life. It's, it's to organize a neo-Nazi witch hunt 
against all opponents of the new neo-Nazi regime. And the targets of lustration are people, of course, in positions of authority within the civil servants, regional government, uh, the universities, research institutes, and so on. And uh, the term lustration refers to what, uh, what is described as, quote, mass disqualification, unquote, of people associated with the former government. It has inevitable racial overtones, and in all likelihood, it will also be directed against communists, Russians, and members of the, of the Jewish community. Well, then, how do we qualify the Obama administration, which is supporting uh, this neo-Nazi takeover? I mean, that's pretty much what it amounts to. Well, I think that's a very important question, and I think that's a question for the American public to answer. Uh, If the Obama administration, um, including the State Department and and the U.S. Congress, because it's a bipartisan uh, agenda, uh, supports the development of a neo-Nazi government supports the installation of a neo-Nazi government. It certainly reflects on these individuals because the sponsors of, uh, of a neo-Nazi regime in the Ukraine uh, are people in high office, people in the White House, people in the State Department and the U.S. Congress. So that, in other words, um, can we say that uh, they are responsible Or can we point to the fact that this implies de facto the existence of neo-Nazi or fascist tendencies within within the the various institutions of the United States state apparatus, including the U.S. Congress? Because if the flowering of democracy in Ukraine, to use the words of the New York Times, which in effect coincides with the installation of a neo-Nazi government, if that flowering of democracy is supported as part of a bipartisan consensus, we might imply from that that the bipartisan consensus has neo-Nazi tendencies. And that is something I think everybody has to reflect upon. Supporting neo-Nazism in any country in the world, from my standpoint, uh, is an act of complicity, particularly in the Ukraine, where the neo-Nazi parties have a long history and where their forefathers um, were involved in atrocities directed against the Ukrainian population, but also uh, the Jewish community in the Ukraine. Uh, I think this support to to neo-Nazi elements in the Ukraine is a reflection of the current state of, of U.S. foreign policy under John Kerry. There's no hesitation in having very openly ties with Al-Qaeda, including photo ops of John McCain with terrorist leaders inside Syria on the one hand, and 
having buddy-buddy relations with neo-Nazi leaders in the Ukraine. All avenues are on the table, including support to neo-Nazis and jihadist terrorists. Lest we forget, United States supported German conglomerates during World War II. And uh, the privatization program launched uh, by Adolf Hitler in 1933 was in some regards similar to that adopted in the UK under Margaret Thatcher. The first thing they did was to privatize the railways, and then they privatized the banks, and they privatized heavy industry, so that in effect the thrust of the Nazi economy in the course of the 1930s was not the state, it was the private sector, and it was a profit-driven military agenda. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Delighted to be on the program. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been Ukraine's Democratic Coup d'etat. Washington supports a neo-Nazi coalition government. Michel Chosodovsky is director of the Center for Research on Globalization based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues. Michel Chosodovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. He is a co-editor and contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Many economists and investigative journalists have contributed to this new volume. Visit the Center for Research on Globalization website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yarrow Mako. To leave comments or other copies of shows, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. Release. You dig me?